0: This morning we begin a new sermon series which will last for several months, where we'll where we'll jump from section of scripture, we'll kind of root ourselves each week in one passage, but we'll be be looking at, at a broader picture of the way the gospel changes everything. The gospel should change your beliefs, your behaviors, your attitude. For Christians in the earliest centuries of the church, belief in Jesus Christ impacted their jobs, their relationships, their families. Now, because of Christianity's cultural impact, particularly for those of us in the Western world, we sometimes overlook how radical the claims of Christianity are. You are a sinner who cannot save yourself. God's own son was born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus, the Savior, died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins, and God has raised him from the dead. And even in our cultural context where, yes, we have neighbors and friends who are dismissive of Christianity, they still see most of them, at least, to be fine with us believing whatever we want to believe, as long as our beliefs don't disrupt their lives. But in the early centuries of the church, becoming a Christian radically disrupted every aspect of life. Becoming a Christian required distinct beliefs, distinct behaviors— It set you apart from your community. It highlighted your differences. And so for the next few months, we'll be looking at these distinct Christian beliefs, including on Easter Sunday, the the belief in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We're going to be looking at the beliefs that made the first Christians distinct, and yet how those beliefs should make us distinct and give us gospel opportunity today. So I'm going to read from 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter writing to churches scattered in the Roman world churches whose lives are at risk believers who are under threat writing to them as God's own people a people on mission so listen to 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 through 12 but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his own possession So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's come to God in prayer. Father, we give you praise for you are the one who has called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. You have shown us the depth of your love by sending Jesus to be our savior, our rescuer. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see our identity as your chosen race, your royal priesthood, your holy nation, the people of your very own possession. Lord, that that would change the way that we think, the way that we act, the very way that we live our lives would be, reflected, would be reflective of your glory and greatness. Lord, we pray for those that, that listen to your word today with doubts. I pray that you would answer them with the power of your truth with the revelation of who you are. You would give spiritual eyes to see your gospel. Father in heaven, we come giving praise to you through Jesus our savior, amen. From the beginning, Christians were treated with hostility. The book of Acts, if you're reading through the Bible, tells the story of the church after Jesus' ascension into heaven. And you see there persecution begin to break out. Death begin to come to those who claim the name of Jesus Christ. Then in the earliest centuries of the church, the persecutions got worse. Christians were viewed as intellectually inferior, as stupid, as dumb, as out of touch with the way things really are. Christians were thought to undermine the right order of society because they rejected the traditional gods. They were even considered by some as those who promoted sedition because they wouldn't worship the gods of the ancestors. They wouldn't bow the knee to the emperor. No other accusations against Christians sound even more outrageous to our modern ears. Christians were charged with incest. Well, they called one another brother and sister, and they were only allowed to marry someone else who was a believer. They were charged with incest. Christians were considered cannibals or even those guilty of, of human sacrifice. Think about a description of a Christian worship service. They pass around the body of that man and ate it. That man who, who in their service, they, re, they rejoice in his death. They ritually remind one another of his death. Christians, and this sounds surprising to us as, as those that live in the 21st century, Christians were even charged as atheists, as those who didn't believe because they had rejected all of the gods of the empire. They were no longer those that that worshipped the gods. They were those who worshipped only one god. Not the emperor, but God. Jesus, the savior, the rescuer. Now to us as modern people, that sounds strange because an atheist today is someone who primarily rejects the belief in the Christian god who sets himself or herself up against belief in any God. But Christians were considered atheists because they rejected all of the gods in favor of merely one. Now, perhaps some of these charges sound nonsensical to us. And today, maybe the the accusations that would be brought against Christians would be different. But it's clear that in the earliest centuries, in the first several centuries after the time of Jesus Christ, that to identify with Christ made a, a believer radically distinct from those around him. Distinct in their beliefs and behaviors, noticed by a watching world. But that's actually what we expect when we, when we read the New Testament documents. The, the apostles are not surprised by these kinds of claims. We just read from 1 Peter, and Peter, one of those three that was closest with Jesus, one of the disciples who was with Jesus all along, sent as an apostle, of the church, a representative of, of God himself. He's writing to a church that's scattered in, the, in the, the ancient world and is already beginning to feel the pain of persecution, the loss of jobs, the loss of status, even, those, even the very loss of life. But, but it's expected when he writes. We, we read from chapter 2, but if you continue reading into chapter 3, you would, you would see that he expects them to suffer for righteousness' sake. They, should, they will suffer because they are doing the right thing. Or if you, if you just turn in your Bible, if you have one with you, to chapter 4, you, you hear him use the same phrase that he used in our passage, beloved, speaking to the churches, those loved by God, chapter 4, verse 12 of 1 Peter. He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. It's expected that the church will suffer for their distinct beliefs. So much so that he concludes chapter 5, verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To be a Christian is to be isolated, to be criticized, to suffer for your faith. To be part of the church is to be distinct, an identity that will be then seen and noticed by the world. But we have been given the privilege to proclaim the grace of God, and we are called to live, to live as followers of Christ, so that our neighbors will hear the message and give praise to God. And so look with me again at at chapter 2 of 1 Peter, at verse 9, where we see our distinct identity. He says to the church, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. The the language is rich and beautiful, but the first thing I I want you to notice is, is he's not speaking merely to individual Christians. He's speaking in the plural to the church. The images are actually images that wouldn't make sense. You as a one person can't be a holy nation. You can't be a chosen race. It's the church collective. And I don't just mean this church, Faith Presbyterian Church, I mean everyone who acknowledges Jesus to be the Savior is called by God. Peter is writing to people scattered across the ancient world, but but the document was written so that you and I, in a part of the world that they wouldn't have even thought of, would read this and respond. Because we, collectively, are called by God. The Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. And and you you feel perhaps that isolation now more than ever before and that's why even in community group we're we're trying to give you continued opportunities to stay connected. Even on an icy day that that you have opportunities to connect virtually with your your community group that you can call on the phone to pray with fellow believers. Or even opportunities to gather together in person because the church is is a collection of people meant to be identified together. Peter is using Old Testament descriptions, these titles of honor describing the people of God and now applying it in an unexpected way. Not merely to those who are ethnically or or biologically descendants of Abraham, but to everyone who calls on the name of Jesus. It, it, look at look back at these phrases. A chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for his own possession. These are words that come right out of the Old Testament. If you flipped back to the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible, it's the story of God rescuing his people and he brings them to Mount Sinai. And in chapter 20, he will give them the Ten Commandments. Basically, he's saying, I have rescued you. This then is how you should live. And so in chapter 19 of the book of Exodus, he's describing his relationship with these people. He's describing what they should look like. In Exodus 19, verses five and six, we read God's description. He says, now therefore, if If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. Now now hear the, the language. You shall be my treasured possession. Among all peoples for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And then God commands that Moses speak those exact words to the people of God. The language then that is picked up by Peter A kid who would have gone to Sabbath school and and heard the reading of God's law, who would have heard these phrases and now realizes by the power of God's spirit, this applies not just to to Old Testament, the Old Testament church, but but to the New Testament church as well. Or we can think of the way that Isaiah, the the prophet, picks up on some of this language that, that, that then is echoed by Peter. In Isaiah chapter 43, verses 20 and 21, God describes my chosen people. The people whom I formed for myself, so that they might declare my praise." God has chosen a people to give praise to himself. We are then God's chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, the people of his own possession. And and continue with me, look at at verse 10 back in 1 Peter chapter two. Peter says, "'Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy.'" Now, to, to us, reading that here in First Peter 2, it, it sounds unnecessarily redundant. W- didn't you already tell me that, that, that we'd received mercy? So, like, verse 10, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. But, but, it's, but it's when we understand that he's drawing again from the images of the Old Testament to give us a picture. The reason for the, the, the apparent redundancy here is so that we, we capture the language, Because he's he's drawing words right out of the Old Testament prophet Hosea. Now, I sometimes worry that my children fear the, the, the the, the constant attention of being always sermon illustrations, but for Hosea's children, it was much worse. Hosea's children were used by God to be a picture of the rebellion of God's people against God in the very names that were given to them. If you you went to Hosea chapter one, you would would learn that Hosea's daughter, God tells Hosea, name your daughter, no mercy. So that as you try and soothe this screaming child to sleep, you have to say, no mercy. That it would be for the people of God, a a picture of their rebellion against God, that they, they have presumed, well, I must be fine, I'm okay. Because I'm part of the people of God, therefore I've got all the mercy I want. And God said, no, no, Hosea, name your daughter no mercy so that the people will hear it. And his son, his name, not my people. So that when, when mom had to call him back inside, she would have to shout out, not my people. So that the neighbors would be reminded that they had rebelled against God, they'd their backs on God. Even the neighbors who could say, no, no if you check Ancestry.com, I'm good. I'm okay, look at, look at my genealogy. I'm part of the people of God. No, no, you cannot presume upon the grace and the mercy of God. Yes, God will forgive all who come to him, but those who come repentant, not those who come presumptuous. And so the very names of Hosea's children. No mercy and not my people were reminders of the sin of the people. Now, thankfully, that's Hosea 1, and by Hosea 2, we get the picture of grace. For all who repent when god himself in hosea chapter 2 says and i will have mercy on no mercy this child whose name was meant to be a picture of of judgment is now the one who will receive mercy and god says i will say to not my people this boy whose very name carries the description of God's judgment. He will, I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. And so when Peter repeats that language, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He's picking up on that beautiful language, the, the beautiful picture in the, in the prophet Hosea that God is the one who shows mercy to those who repent. And so if you see your sin and your rebellion, then come today. No matter what your genealogy or ancestry looks like, God's mercy is here for you if you confess your sins because he has sent his son to be your rescuer, the lamb of God who died for you. And so Peter is telling the church, you have a distinct identity which gives you a distinct mission. Look back again at verse 9 in in our chapter, 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You're not just given this to sort of fill your resume or, or puff your pride. You are given this new identity for a distinct purpose that you may proclaim the excellencies of God. The one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The one who called you, who has shown forth his excellencies. And and we saw when we were looking through the Psalms that the the excellencies, the the greatness of God, not only pointed us to his character, yes, it does point us to his holiness, his perfection, but it also reminds us that God is the one who has done marvelous things. Taken those who are lost in the dark and brought us into the marvel of the light of relationship with him and love. Your distinct identity is for the purpose of making the gospel known, that you may proclaim the excellencies of God. Now, Peter repeats that in verse 12. Look, look again with me. He says, not only when you proclaim the gospel, but the very way that you act. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Your mission, church, is to proclaim the gospel and then to live out gospel identity so much so that if people start these rumors about you, about incest or cannibalism or or selfishness or pride, that, that no, others will say that that can't be. I've seen their good deeds. I give praise to God because I've heard the gospel from them. You're given this identity so that others would hear the gospel Message. Because on the day of visitation, the day when Jesus returns, everyone will acknowledge him as the judge. But only those who have heard the message and responded in repentance, turning from sin, only those who have put their trust in him will receive him as Savior and be able to join in glorifying God. And so God has sent his church as his holy, his holy designated people so that others would hear the gospel through us. And then Peter, he he tells the church, you have a distinct identity, you have a distinct mission, and so now you need to to live as those who are distinct in the world. Look at the way he speaks in verse 11. He he uses this this relational language, beloved. He's coming to them with, with compassion. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Look at the descriptions that, that he gives. You are sojourners and exiles. Now, he's not necessarily talking to people who were politically or, or, or in, in, a, in a technical sense, those who had geographically moved. Almost everyone, despite the, the possibility of travel in the ancient world, almost everyone lived where their grandparents had lived. Because you were doing the job your grandparents had done. And so yes, they're, they're, they did, they, he's not talking about their green cards or their passports to describe them as sojourners and exiles. He's talking about them spiritually. That spiritually, this world is not your final destination. This is not your ultimate home. You should not be one who's living in the passions of the flesh, living for the things of this world, living for, to chase your own desires, no, you should be living in the kingdom of God. You are a sojourner. You're an exile. You, you don't live here permanently. And, and even if you're not a Christian, you feel something of this tension of a world where, where it feels like there's so much that's good and you, you feel the brokenness. It, it, you, you feel like th- 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 this isn't the way it should be. That when you see something terrible happen, you, you want to give it, Rightly, a moral category. You want to look at something, even if you don't believe in God, you want to say that's wrong, that's evil. And even as you chase after the things of this world, maybe you've you've gotten it. You've gotten the, the pleasures and the power of this world and you think, is this all there is? Maybe the tension that you feel in your heart should actually be a picture that there is something more out there. Maybe our inconsolable desires point us to another world point us to another kingdom. And as Christians, we understand what that kingdom is. It's the kingdom of God. We live here in this world as sojourners, as exiles. But we have an allegiance somewhere else. We have have purpose somewhere else. But too often as Christians, we appear as citizens. Our neighbors would look at us and say, well, you're so completely aligned with the, the culture around you with the values and beliefs and priorities of the world around you, that, that you don't look like a sojourner or exile. You belong here. But Peter is saying, abstain from the passions of the flesh because they wage war against your soul. See, our, our, your biggest problem as a, as a Christian is not what's happening in the world around you. Our biggest problem as a church is not the pressure the world puts on us. Your biggest problem is you. Your own sinful desires waging war against you, chasing after you. Because when you, when you give yourself to anything other than God himself, it will ultimately lead to destruction because your desires will consume you. They are waging war against your soul. Your biggest problem in life is you. Pastor Tim Keller was diagnosed recently with pancreatic cancer. And his name may be familiar to you. I've recommended it repeatedly in our Faith Explored course, his very helpful book, um, uh, A Reason for God. But Pastor Tim Keller was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, a very, a very serious disease. And, he, and he, he says people often ask him how he's doing. And he admits that everyone who faces a chronic illness sort of lives with a, with a certain tension. On the one hand, he says you'd be upset if people never asked you how you're doing. But then on the other hand, it, it's so tedious to be always talking about the same thing again and again. But he admits, well, people are going to ask, and, and I guess it's better to know that people care about you than if they just stopped caring altogether. But he says sometimes the, the language we use about cancer is, is, a, is, a, is, a, is the language of battle or war, a fight against cancer. And, and at times that's, that's a, sort of an appropriate slogans or even an appropriate posture in the, in the face, of, in the face of, of treatment. But Pastor Keller warns, he says, he says, the problem is that for me as a Christian, I then make the enemy the disease. That that gets all of my focus. But he, he says, I'm not fighting cancer. I'm fighting my sin. He says, if it wasn't for my sin, I would be completely resting in Christ even with this diagnosis because I would know the the spiritual reality of the resurrection so fully that I wouldn't have fear or worry. I would be fine spiritually, emotionally, in every way if I were really trusting. He says, and yet the fears, the anxiety, the sadness, and the grief abound. He mentions his wife, Kathy, and admits that after all these years, it's almost certain that one or the other of us is going to see the other die. And then spend some years here probably without one another. He says that's the one grief that, that perhaps is worth crying about. And if Jesus were here, if he was next to me, he'd cry too. But that's the point, isn't it? That if I knew that, that Jesus was right here with me, then I wouldn't be worried about fighting this disease as much as I am fighting the sin in me, the selfishness that my treatments have exposed in me, my expectations for life of of comfort and convenience in this world. See, it's my sin, he says, that keeps me from the spiritual realities that would buoy me up, that would strengthen me, that would be reminders that Jesus is right here with me. And And so Pastor Keller says, and therefore, the way that you handle imminent death is by fighting sin so that you can enter into deeper communion with God. And Peter Peter would agree. The war is not a war against the world. It's a war against your sin. It's your own desires that are waging war against your soul. So he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. The mere temporal priorities that you've placed on life, the the desire for, for things around you. He will tell the, the church to flee from sexual immorality, to destroy selfishness, to pursue forgiveness. One commentator says what, what Peter demands here is a clean moral break with the natural impulses of the past. That everything that, that once mattered most to you, you need to, you need to fight against as you pursue your identity as a, as a child of God, as part of God's church. And so in the coming weeks, what we're going to do each week is we'll, we, won't, we won't continue merely in First Peter. We'll jump to, to, to different passages to look at the, 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 the ways in which we can fight the passions of the flesh, that we can wage war against the, the, the destruction against our souls. Looking at the ways in which we are a people made distinct by the mercy of God. Now, we've been looking at the the, the earliest centuries of the the Christian church after the resurrection of Jesus. And New Testament scholar Larry Hurtado, what what he did is he identified the distinct beliefs and actions of Christians during those centuries. In in one of his lecture series, he he looks at the, the violence that was brought against Christians. And he says, why would anyone ever become a Christian? And then he says, well, it's because of the, the truth of what God has done, and then the, the church is then made distinct in, in five ways. That we are a, a church given a sexually countercultural ethic, that the world says, live this way, do whatever you want, and yet the gospel calls us to a different way of living. He he talks about the sanctity of life, that Christians see the image of God in everyone they meet, and so value life around them. We'll look at hospitality to the poor and suffering. When in the ancient world you fought for yourself to get what you wanted in the church, they cared for the most vulnerable. We'll look at the multi-ethnic diversity within the church community. You weren't identified merely from where you were from or your vocation, you weren't identified by your, your race or your ethnicity primarily in the church, but the gospel went to every nation on earth. And we'll look at the radical forgiveness and reconciliation required in the Christian community. These distinctives of the ancient church, which you would hear are, are distinctives that would, would show forth the gospel even today. And so we'll jump from passage to passage each week, kind of aligning ourselves with the, the text that's there to hear the truth of God. That we are those called to, 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 and given a distinct identity which then changes our behavior, which is then visible to the watching world and we have the the opportunity to proclaim the gospel so that our neighbors will join us in giving glory to God. Peter tells the church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for God's own possession. In the second century, missionaries proclaimed the gospel in Lyons and Vienne. Towns in Gaul today would, on a map, would be within modern France. Not too far from where we met our missionaries today. A a modern historian captures the scene in the year 177. As the church grew, spiritual resistance began to mount. And persecution against the Christians began. Christians were shut out of businesses and houses they endured all kinds of shame and personal injuries. Mobs formed to beat, stone, and rob the Christians. When believers were arrested and examined by the city authorities, they boldly confessed their allegiance to Christ. One young enslaved woman suffering was described by the, the ancient historian Eusebius. The woman's name is Blandina, her, her torturers, we're told by Eusebius, were astonished at her endurance as her entire body was mangled and broken. And they testified that, that one of these forms of torture should have been sufficient to destroy her life. But the blessed woman, like a noble athlete, renewed her strength in her confession. And her comfort and rec- recreation and relief from the pain of her sufferings was in exclaiming, I am a Christian another martyr, a deacon from Vienne, refused to give his name to his captors. Not out of belligerence because we know his name. His name was Sanctus, Eusebius wrote it down for us. He, he, he refused to give his name because he believed his identity had already been made clear in the answer he'd given to his captors. Even in the midst of brutal torture, this man said, I am a Christian. He did not name his hometown, his vocation, his social status, his his ethnic race. No, he'd already given the full identity. I am a Christian. He insisted that he had no status except that as a follower of Christ. A distinct identity found in Jesus alone. And in that identity, proclaiming the gospel even in a hostile world, Blandina and Sanctus, martyrs for their faith. O beloved church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may praise the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Father, I ask that you would strengthen us by the power of the gospel, that we would see our identity in what Jesus has done for us. Lord, we rejoice in the faithful proclamation of the gospel by Christians through the centuries, that the gospel was handed to us, brought to us by those who were faithful to our message, whose lives had been transformed. Lord, I pray that you would make us a people who are distinct, distinct in our commitment to you in in declaring your grace and love and power and majesty because you are the God who rescued us from sin. You brought us out of darkness. So Lord, for those who have listened today without faith in Jesus, I pray that, that now even as we pray that your spirit would convict each one of sin, that they would turn from sin and put their trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus, our Savior, the one who died for us, the one who was raised from the dead, the one who reigns as the King now. Father in heaven, we come, praying in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.